It's hard to think of an issue which has seen a more profound change in attitudes over the last two or three decades than the one we're discussing today. Views commonly held 30 years ago have seen a huge shift, not only from one generation to the next, but by individuals themselves. My name's Mark Dowd, and in this edition of Things Unseen, we'll be aiming to chart the astonishing change in the UK on gay rights since the 1980s. As a reminder of how far we've come, here's Margaret Thatcher in 1988 defending Section 28, the law which forbade the promotion of gay rights in schools. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. Yet more than two decades later, this was David Cameron as Tory Prime Minister. So I don't support gay marriage in spite of being a Conservative. I support gay marriage because I am a Conservative. 30 years on, we now live in a Western world, at least, where gay marriage is now firmly established. Yet advances in LGBT rights tell us a lot, not only about how society has changed, but also how they've impacted on the world of faith. Why has this subject of human sexuality been such a bugbear for religious communities, leading to division and heated exchanges? Is onward change inevitable, or will traditionalists always be able to point to scriptural texts and argue that some truths are unchanging? Will these changes lead to more shifts in attitudes and legal rights, or might they yet be reversed? I'm no stranger to all this. I've just had a book published called Queer and Catholic, but I've got two guests here to help out, to tell the story of how things have changed for gay people of faith on this occasion from their point of view. From an Islamic perspective, a man who is married to his husband, Tim. Please introduce yourself. I'm Mubin Azar and I'm a journalist and filmmaker. And from a Hindu vantage point? My name is Ajit Jagnat and uh, I'd say I'm a self-proclaimed culture vulture here in London. Very good. Very simple question to kick off. Mubin, from a personal point of view, how have things changed since your earlier memories of, of being a gay man? I would say in uh, a few words, there has been a world of difference. So I think growing up, my first acknowledgement really, I wouldn't even say that I was gay because I wasn't ready to make that acknowledgement. So my first acknowledgement that I was not straight seemed to have such huge, profound implications that it would be something that I wouldn't be able to share with anyone or I wouldn't be able to live in a fully rounded, authentic way. Whereas now, as you just said, I'm married and I'm very happy and uh, I would absolutely identify as, as a gay man and there is no issue with that. How, how old are you, actually? I'm 38. I have okay. to think about that. The birthdays seem to be speeding up. So, yeah, I'm 38. OK. And when you were young, when you had your first experiences of feeling attracted to other men, how did you interpret that from a religious point of view? Did you start thinking about issues like punishment and condemnation? Or I, I think it took me a really long time, actually. So I grew up in Yorkshire. I went to a predominantly second-generation Pakistani Muslim school and went to mosque, had a very traditional second-generation Pakistani working-class kind of upbringing. Parents were super hardworking. Dad was a bus driver. I think when I was 
young or when I started experiencing certain feelings or just acknowledging that I wasn't straight, it wasn't really about punishment. If I'm really honest, it was about stigma and people finding out. So there were cultural issues there. It was only later, so I'd say by the time I was about 20, 21 maybe, that I was really thinking about, okay, let's really have an examination of the theology here. Let's really look into texts, for example. Let's really look at the issue of punishment and what is punishable. But when I was 22, the first person that I came out to was my imam. So it was someone that I'd studied GCSE and then A-level Islamic studies with. I was doing a master's in Islamic studies at the time. So it was your religious teacher, not your parents or your Exactly, family, yeah. exactly. And I couldn't even, I mean, it, it might sound really strange at this time saying, well, it wasn't an acknowledgement that I was gay. It was an acknowledgement that I wasn't straight. That might sound really odd. But if I can paint a picture for you, this imam who I'd known for a very long time, who I really, really respected, I went to meet him on a Friday evening I'd already kind of said, look, I need to speak to you about something. And he's someone that I'd turn to for advice generally. And when I sat down, I honestly think I can remember it really vividly. It maybe took me an hour to get the words out. And the words were, they weren't, I'm gay, because I couldn't say that. I didn't know what that really meant at the time. The words were, I have issues with my sexuality. And I kept saying the sentence, I have issues with, and then not finishing the sentence. So it took ages, but eventually we had that conversation. So I have issues with my sexuality. I want to come to look at your family reaction shortly, but Ajit, was that a similar experience for yourself? Or, you know, would, I think possibly you might have had even earlier memories of, of realising that you were gay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, it wasn't so much about punishment, but weirdly about loss. My religious upbringing is heavily tied in with my family dynamic and not in the sense that we're very strict Hindus in, in any shape or form, but just a lot of the values of Hinduism that, that we were taught as children and when we would come together as a family to celebrate aspects of, of Hinduism, it was framed very much in that way of, of the family and, and what kind of family life we were having and what we wanted. So realising that there was something that was different about myself and that that would have an impact on the dynamic of the family was what frightened me. Did you have lots of siblings? I've got two older siblings, two okay. very supportive older siblings. And they I were... think the pressure when you're an only child and you say that you're gay is, is enormous sometimes. Massive. The first thing is, oh, where are the grandkids coming from? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. I think it's like, where does the legacy lie? And also my dad is the youngest of 12 children. And so, you know, there's a whole entire legacy and clan of other jugnets who are out there that I was thinking, does this end with me? And I'm actually the youngest male out of everyone. So a lot of things were kind of going in, impacting my thoughts in that in that way. So is it fair to say that apprehensions and fears you might have had in early age were less about what the Hindu scriptures and texts and religion say, but more how will they explain later on in life that I don't have a bride and I'm not going to get married? Exactly. And what's everyone going to say about us as a family? Exactly, exactly. Okay. But... It was actually my my brother and my sister were the first people I went to to talk about it. And again, I think in a similar situation that that you were in, I, I don't I can't remember the words exactly I used, but I certainly knew that there was something very different about me, and I wanted to kind of pitch the idea to them to uh, to have Make a, it to, like a business a plan bit of a pitch. The well, idea. I, I I lined it up in that way as well. I had a free period at school, and I kind of teased them like, well, "Why don't we all go out for lunch?" And so I took them out there, had a lovely lunch, and then I said, "So I've got something I want to talk to you about," and kind of presented the case to them there that I said, 
I, I think at the time, I, I think a lot of people go through this experience of saying, I think I might be bisexual or I might be gay. I, I, I don't know. I just know I'm not, I'm not straight. Yeah. And we had a very open and frank conversation together. And because I was 16 when I did this, that our advice was, you are quite young. You probably are, but you're probably still finding out who you might be. So why don't you still maybe think about it? and make more of an informed decision, you know, have more life life experiences and, and see see where you might stand in a year's time or two years' time or something like that. And I, I know some people might interpret that as them maybe delaying that in some way, but I do still take it as one of the best pieces of advice that they could have given me at the time, which was, yeah, I I don't know. I don't have a sense of sense of things. So why don't we take a more organic approach and just sort of see where things fall? You both have the advantage of being considerably younger than me. I should inform the listeners. I'm 58. And when I came out to my parents in the 1970s by talking in my sleep about a young boy I had a crush on, I was frog marched off to the local GP because my mother thought a few antibiotics oh uh, would get rid of same sex attraction. But funnily enough, in keeping with the theme of this programme, charting the change and transformation, that Catholic mother who thought I might be going to hell and I might be committing mortal sin was one of my greatest supporters in the last few years of her life. Mm -hmm. She came to gay Catholic conferences. She danced to ABBA. She thought, uh, you know, the Vatican got it all wrong and she was supporting her son. But, I mean, in your case, did you ever approach you? You came out to your imam, Mabin, Mm Did you ever then think, I'm going to at some point have to choose between conservative traditional religion uh-huh. and who I am? Or did you think, I'm going to have to try and somehow pull this together? No, no, I think my nature is very much that I like to navigate things, or at least try to navigate things. And so I'd say for a fairly long period, maybe a year after I told the imam, we sat down regularly and went through the Quran and the Hadith. And uh, it was really, I was really surprised because the imam that I'm speaking about, he's someone that does have a public profile. He is, he's very senior in the UK and he's someone that lots of people go to, to seek advice. So he potentially had a lot to lose if he came across as being unorthodox or a bit liberal on this. He did, but the, the most surprising thing for me was he was very honest and he was actually really supportive. But he said to me at the time, he said, in all the years I've been an imam and at that point I think he'd been an imam for maybe two decades he said I've dealt with cases of people coming to me and confessing murder i.e the police don't know but I've killed someone what shall I do he dealt with cases of incest he'd never dealt with anyone coming to him and saying I think I might be gay oh wow he just never had that conversation and so he was really honest and he said he was in uncharted territory (laughs) exactly and he said that really early on he said look as as someone that's been my student for a long time And as someone that I support, I'm going to help you. Of course I am. But this is new territory for me. And so we spent a long time then looking at the Quran and various interpretations of Quranic text and the Hadith, the kind of narrations of of the Prophet Muhammad's life and trying to navigate what that meant for me. And as the Imam said, and I think this was remarkably honest of him, he said, I don't have any answers, really. I don't have any answers in terms of what you should do. So what I, the answers that I do have, he said, is I can tell you what traditional interpretations have been, but I can't tell you what someone in your position, i.e. someone that's actually asserting this and saying, I have these feelings. I can't tell you what to do. There's a, a starkly kind of practical methodology, isn't there? So if I'm saying I'm not attracted to women... I am attracted to men. 
And you're saying the classical interpretation is that it's it's punishable and it's not recommended and you can't get married, you can't have a relationship and you can't have sex. Okay, so then my choices are celibacy or marrying a woman. Which one of those are you going to condemn me to? And that's when I think that's when things shift because all of a sudden, if you're dealing in an abstract way or as people do at the moment, type things on the internet, of course, you can condemn anyone to a life of celibacy or you can say things about Adam and Steve and not Adam and Eve. But if you know someone and you can see and you can gauge the practical effect it's going to have on their lives, that's what shifts. And I think it, I imagine in in both your experiences in terms of the Hindu faith and in terms of the Catholic faith and in terms of every other faith, you know, in terms of your mom changing her position, I imagine a large part of that wasn't, you know, the angel Gabriel coming to her and saying, look, there's new revelation. I imagine a large part of that was her thinking, okay, this is my son's life. So practically, what is he supposed to do here? And I think that's what shifts and changes our attitudes. I think the primacy of human contact is terribly important because in my mother's case, she just met more and more of my gay friends. Mm. And the more she liked them, the more she couldn't really oppose what was going on and she looked at the texts of the catholic faith describing this condition as intrinsically disordered she heard biblical passages about uh, this thing being a uh, 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 you know something that was potentially an abomination mm-hmm. and we did have discussions and i said mum these things in the bible are about cases of rape about child prostitutes um, yeah abs- absolutely but i mean ajit in your in your case in hinduism i understand i mean there are actually in temples images of of men and women uh not quite making out together, but it's fairly clear what's going on. It's that much more yeah. than making out. I about? mean, I mean, it's the religion that brought you the Kama Sutra here. So uh, <laughs> I feel like, you know, we've shown a slightly more open mind to quite a lot of things. But and Fluid. Yeah, and I, I do think that quite a lot of certainly what I was taught around Hinduism, because I did, I attended a Sunday school almost every Sunday from the ages of four till 13 and being shown a lot of the text and the well, everything was basically open for interpretation and it all had other meanings to it so it would be that it's a story yes as mythical as it may sound but it's also talking about other issues so for example like the hindu god ganesh is uh, seen as the the remover of obstacles um and i remember being pushed all the texts around ganesh the first time i came up to my mom and being told like you know let this help you let this guide you in some way what i took away from hinduism was just that a lot of it's open to interpretation and you take away what is applicable to your life. And yes, maybe if I'm faced with a difficulty in life, maybe I would turn to my faith to help me get, get through that. Or, But the stories have taught me more about how you tap into your personal self and your personal determination to overcome those challenges. What I want to do is actually tie this discussion of text down to the traditional problem a lot of religious communities have had with this issue. Right. And... I mean, I'm not a Christian evangelical, but I can tell you what often happens in evangelical circles. There's quite a literal black and white understanding of what these texts mean. And if it looks as though that might not be true, then the whole of the Bible is up for grabs. So you hold the line. Right, sure. And, right, and okay. is, 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 is that something that rings a bell in your experience with the Quran? Because I, I think that's, there, there's, there's yeah. these things called clobber texts. These yeah. texts come back to clobber you all the time. It's like a table tennis match. And yeah. you, you try and defend yourself and a traditionalist Muslim will come back to you, Mubin, and say, aha, look, this text, this text. Yeah, of course. I, th- I think that's absolutely the case, that there is uh, this kind of underlying justification that this is a corrosion of society so you know we've 
all of us, I'm sure, have heard this a million times, that uh, there is a family system and that involves a man and a woman or in some Muslims' cases, a man and four women. And then you have children, yeah? And, you know, that that is society and that's how you build society. But I think there's a more acute problem, uh, certainly, I would say, in an Islamic context, but I also think in a in Judaism and within Christianity. And that issue is to do with historical interpretation. Historically, Islamic text and the Quran and the Hadith have been interpreted by men. They've been heterosexual men and men of a particular perspective. Yeah. And so as a result of that, I don't think it's some wild, crazy coincidence. I think there is a reason that, for example, Islam, let's be honest about it, is seen by many people as misogynistic. I don't think it's intrinsically misogynistic, although I do have problems with some part of the text. Similarly, I don't think Islam is intrinsically homophobic. I don't think it has a problem with gay people. But traditionally, it's been interpreted by heterosexual men. So you have, and this is the thing that you will get people, I'm sure some people listening to this will say, well, this guy is just taking a, you know, a pick and mix approach. What you mean like every other human being that's ever lived then? Because religious people, all of us, we will pick and choose which bit of the text we want to apply. And religion, as far as I'm, you know, I'll put my hands up and I'll say this. As an adult, I have learned after years of kind of tying myself in knots, and lots of Muslims do this about many issues, you know, well, there's references to slavery, but it's contextual and it's abrogated by this verse. And if you turn your head to the right and squint, then it's all lovely. You know, it's not all lovely. Let's be honest about it. It's the same in the Bible. It's the same in Hindu texts. But there's the, stuff the, there the, that isn't lovely. The classic narrative that yeah. unites our scriptures, if you like, is that story of Sodom and Gomorrah. How do you deal with it? Because time and again, people will say it's black and white. It says here, yeah. you know, this is a against... Well, it's not. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, for example, in, in the Quran, we have it's the same story. And it's uh, it's the people of Lot where God sends angels who look like beautiful men and these people who are described as xenophobes, they rape these angels who are beautiful men. And then God says enough and God sends a huge angel and this angel lifts the city on his wing and turns it upside down and everyone dies. Okay, I'm not advocating raping angels. That, yeah. that that is the text. So if we're going to, yeah. you know, some people might think, well, you you know, you're willfully misinterpreting that. I'm not. It talks about raping angels. It would be the equivalent in the 21st century of looking at lots of cases of women being abused by men and saying that means we're against heterosexuality. Yeah, or also don't be xenophobic. Why don't we take that lesson from it? What about in Hinduism, uh, Ajit? Are there, are there clobber texts? Are there things that you've had to occasionally avoid or be aware of? I mean, I will admit I'm pretty hindu light in my religious faith here. So I can't say that there is a specific text that I have seen that has revealed such stories or that explicitly spells it out. Maybe it does. But I do take your point about the interpretation aspects, though, and how people over the centuries have just taken different bits and completely going back to your point, the pick and mick approach. One added difficulty that Christians have is that it's not just the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We also have St. Paul mm -hmm. in the New Testament writing after Jesus and many letters to different communities. And there are several references where he talks about men being consumed with lust for one another. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of arguments there. But of course, 
as I said previously, that it's often the case that these are examples of relationships which are not consenting relationships, mm -hmm. and they're often the exploitation of young people by elder people, mm -hmm. uh, which, again, would not be supported by sure, anybody. Sure, sure. I mean, but I'd even go further, and we have a similar issue in the sense that it's not St. Paul, but we have the caliphs. So we have a caliph called Umar, and the most orthodox scholar would say that Umar was militant in not only in terms of how he wanted to spread Islam. And this is after the Prophet Muhammad historically is, he, you know, he's no longer on earth and Umar is spreading Islam in a particular way. Now, there's lots of textual references in the Hadith to Umar ordering the punishment of men who have sex with men. Now, are any of those references based on the words of the Prophet or the Quran? Absolutely not. My argument is always, you know, there are Hadith where the Prophet Muhammad is said to have told believers in his lifetime the nicest way and the recommended way to cut their nails. Yeah, so there, there is a, there's literally a hadith which says, start with this finger and work your way around. That's the best way to cut your nails. So I would suggest that if the Prophet Muhammad had time to tell people how to cut their nails, why did he not have time to say anything about gay men or lesbians? Why is there, you know, these things are not, are not discussed. We're saying in this programme, 30 years, huge transformations. It does seem that it's religious communities who often have to be drag kicking and screaming to kind of catch up with the, everybody else. Is that just because of texts like the Quran and the Bible or, or are there other things do you think? I think being... it, uh, it often is. And obviously the discrimination and stigma isn't exclusive to religious communities. But I think what religious communities have in particular is a justification for their homophobia and for their attitude. So quite often, I know from personal experience and from speaking to family, friends, etc., that they will justify a particular stance, I you shouldn't be doing this, or you can't have this kind of relationship. And when you go to the why of the why of the why, the ultimate answer is, well, because God says so. Now, I think if you're not from a religious community or the justification isn't religious, then you haven't got that, well, God says so. But in religious communities, quite often, because of traditional interpretation, there is that. And that's the trump card, isn't it? You know, well, how... what, one obvious reason why they probably had huge problems with it is that so many of these communities will not allow any sexual expression outside marriage. Mm -hmm. We've only had gay marriage since 2013. So basically, if they give a green light to this kind of relationship, they could be ipso facto, mm -hmm. green lighting all sorts of infidelities and behaviour in heterosexual patterns, which would be unwelcome. So they potentially saw the whole LGBT gender as some sort of Trojan horse. Ajit, in the case of, of, of Hindu communities, it's not texts and scriptures as such. It is much more of a cultural sense of expectation, isn't it? That yeah. shame... What's everyone going to say? I think going to one of your earlier points, Mavine, I think that there is a bit of a muddying of the waters here. And I can only speak to from my personal experience of both my parents are from the island Mauritius, which is a predominantly Hindu country. They came over to the UK in the 70s, have raised their children here uh, in the UK. And it's that conflict of honouring what are the values and the cultural traditions of back home with I'm now raising children who are born and raised here. And I count my blessings that I grew up in a relatively liberal house that my parents presented us with sort of both scenarios. You can have, have the identities of both cultures and quite a lot of my Hindu upbringing is associated with what 
the family does and did back home in Mauritius, but then applying it to here, living in Britain, living in modern day Britain, and and then being presented with the images of the, you know of what we're seeing that there are gay people in the media and that that the laws are changing and that uh, you know that this world is is becoming a bit more open. And my parents did present it to me as take the bits that mean something to you, which is why, you know, my fear of when I was coming up was about this idea of, of losing that family identity or, or, or making a significant change to that dynamic uh, and feeling like I'm disrespecting it in, in, in that way. But really, in hindsight now, and even just as saying it, I realised what, what I had was being presented with choices. Uh, Mabina, I want to sure. ask you something very specific. Fairly recently, you got married. Mm. Now, it's one thing to come out to your imam and your family. It's another thing to go to your family and saying, here's my fiancé, here's my future husband. Mm-hmm. Was there any lump in your throat when you thought about breaking the news to them? Because that's a big deal for your Muslim families in, in terms of the, their reputation and what people are going to say about them as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I only... I've been with uh, Your husband's Mile name Half. is Tim. He's, he's is right? Tim, yeah. yeah, and I've been with him for. We'd been together for ten years, so I, I asked him to marry me on our tenth anniversary. I had a real understanding even before I asked him that my parents certainly were very unlikely to partake in in the actual wedding, but I decided it was something that I wanted to do for myself and for us, and then kind of moving on from there, and telling my family that I was getting married. It unfolded pretty much how I thought it would in the sense that there was some anger and then a lot of denial. And I have a really good relationship with my family in the sense that I'll speak to my parents pretty much every day. They weren't comfortable coming to the wedding. They know it happened. They were invited consistently. They didn't come. I saw them maybe a week later and we spoke about it briefly. They speak to Tim now and again. They'll, you know, call up. They've met him a few times. Is, so is, is not, he relaxed and welcome when you meet the family? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's not in any way, it's not ideal. But And this isn't a religious point, it's a cultural and generational point. So I know that for my parents, who are now, you know, both in the 70s and retired, they are not of the age, I would say, where you can introduce ideas that seem to them to be so entirely radical and otherworldly. You can't introduce those ideas and expect to win them over. Or, you know, you can try to, but it's not always going to work. And this is one of those contexts where I have had to accept that there are other battles which are are worth fighting more for. In this context, realistically, does it affect my life on a day-to-day basis? No. It would be lovely if they came over on a Sunday and ate with us, but they don't, and they're not comfortable doing that. We're looking at how attitudes have transformed and changed. As you, living in London here, would you feel comfortable now about walking down the street, holding hands with a guy without any kind of fear or apprehension of reaction or would you still have the eyes in the back of your head? I don't think I have an issue with it really. For example, I'm seeing someone at the moment and I have no qualms holding his hand and walking down the street. What street in particular though, if you ask me, would probably be another answer. So for example, I... I live in South East London, and I feel like that would probably turn a few heads, which I probably would feel a bit uncomfortable Whereas about. if you were walking through Soho, you would have a problem. No problem at all. Or even walking uh, walking down the road to where my mum lives. I don't think I would have any issue there. So it does have its pockets of... I don't want to say pockets of tolerance in, in London, because I do think London is quite certainly more open-minded than other areas of the, of, of the country. But we do obviously have areas where 
it's still not been introduced yet. And that's why I do feel education is really important uh, being a part of that. And I do certainly have a uh, a feeling of obligation to that's part of my role also to tell people more about this, that there are people out there who have same-sex marriages and same-sex relationships. And with the creation now of so many films, so many narratives and yeah. vehicles, do you have an optimistic view in terms of the passage of messages from the West into India that the whole issue of, of gay identity and LGBT rights mm. actually in the biggest Hindu country in the world, yeah. that, that the picture is actually looking forward a, a, a rosy picture? I do think so. And I think the media has played a huge part in that sort of education. Yeah, that, I've been I mean, in Mumbai when they showed Brokeback Mountain. Exactly. And I know that some films do generate a lot of criticism and, and anger sometimes. But I mean, no, 20 years ago, it was a bit risque to have a gay storyline. Now there's barely a TV drama that doesn't have a gay character already in it. And I think that influence in the media is obviously spilling over into other areas of the media around the world. And is Bollywood now gay friendly in a way that it wasn't 20, 25 years ago? I mean, let's face it, Bollywood's quite fabulous though, isn't it? So I think we've all appreciated <laughs> Does fabulous mean gay? Or? Well, I mean, that's the, that is, that's the question. Is Does that mean gay? I, I mean, that's open for interpretation for, for other people. But if we see more of that kind of acceptance, I think I remember growing up and watching Bollywood films that you'd see a character who like cross-dressed or was a bit effeminate and they would be perceived in a slightly negative light. But now watching a few more modern day Bollywood films, that character is actually making more of a contribution to the narrative and making a more of a contribution to the scene. And yes, sometimes it can be framed in a comedic way, but it's not in that comedic we're pointing and laughing at you, we're laughing with you as part of the narrative. And I think that that's definitely a move in the right direction. Mabim, we mustn't get ahead of ourselves. There are about a dozen countries in the world where, you know, you can be put to death. Yeah, completely. For having sex um, with uh, someone, a male with a male, less so with a male with a female. Mm -hmm. That's because of a blindness to female sexuality. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in the fullness of time that all of these places will come into line or do you think there'll always be pockets of danger in the world where to be openly gay will be risking your life? I think, and I, I use this word carefully, that progress, I think it's inevitable. I think it's going to happen, but it's going to take a long time still. And I think legality and punishment is one thing. There's also an issue with culture in itself. And culturally, there are lots of places that I visit with work, for example, where there isn't really an acknowledgement that gay people actually even exist. Do you mean like peer group pressure? Do you mean bullying? Do you mean just uh, just that sort of blanking of people? Well, I, I wouldn't yeah. even say that. I'd say that there's literally not acknowledgement that gay people exist in the sense that, well, no one can be gay because those people aren't real. They're sometimes seen as a kind of foreign construct. So, for example, I work really regularly in Pakistan for the BBC and I know Pakistan really really well now I know amongst my extended family there there's a conversation about when I would get married and that conversation is when will you marry a woman not you know I've never had an honest conversation with them let's put it like that because I know in their sphere gay people don't actually exist now it, to understand that maybe you've got to think for many listeners in a, in a British context you've got to think of that kind of model of the 70s or the 60s in the UK, where, where gay people were very narrowly defined. So you had a comedic kind of Kenneth Williams figure who was pure comedy, maybe a bit tragic. Then John Inman and Larry Grace. Yeah, yeah. And then later in the 80s, you know, you've got Boy George. So when I was growing up, Boy George was a kind of big reference. But Boy George, as brilliant as he is, 
his gay identity was in a, a very particular kind of narrow definition. So he was fabulous. He was colorful. He dressed in a particular way and so forth. So what I'm saying is in a lot of these places and lots of places I've worked around the world, there isn't really an understanding that gay people don't have I am gay written on their forehead. Do you know what I mean? They just yeah. think, well, you know, you're a respectable guy and you work for the BBC and you look like everyone else. So of course you're not gay. But so I mean, I, that's you, that's difficult, and I think you've te- you're you're publicly quite well known now. I mean, have you had death threats? Have you had Facebook like, uh, trolls? Yeah, I have. I mean, you, you are you are taking risks, aren't you? I mean, there are yeah, some I guess so. People there was there. this there's this guy that a couple of years ago he set up this website, which was he actually went to the trouble of setting up a website, which which said it was, it was really strange. There were kind of story after story about me. One was it was about my life as a gay man, and then. The next story was about me being a Mossad agent. So people will really invest a lot of time into creating these narratives. But I understand exactly why. It's because they feel threatened. Now, the thing is, if you're, I'm going to use this phrase, if you're a comedy gay, and there's nothing wrong with being a comedy gay, yeah? If you're like a comedy gay or or your entire identity is a bit Boy George, and that's brilliant, then I think in certain circles, you're not seen as being a threat. That's the defining thing. But if actually you don't fit into those really narrow definitions, or, you know, you mentioned the Bollywood reference. So in Bollywood, often gay people are represented as the comedic extras. They don't take main roles. They are the comedic, slightly tragic figures. I, I call this the Will and Grace syndrome. Yeah, well, that, exactly. It is that. It's basically you have a desexualized safe exactly. man who's living with a woman. They're really a sort of pretend couple. But the minute that Will was ever allowed to sleep with a man and become really sexually active you what happens you're the, the a threat. series would have folded exactly exactly and what i'm saying is in a lot of contexts i think people feel really threatened if you come across a particular way or you've got a public platform and you're not easily identifiable as gay but being gay is just part of your identity i think a lot of people might feel threatened by that and then they react and mm. that's that's not always good question to both of you just to round off There'll be people listening to this program who haven't come out, potentially. People who are teetering with the idea of it but are afraid of making that jump. If you dig into your own experiences when you were at that point yourself, Mabin, first of all, with you, what what would you say to those people? I can't say this clearly enough. Come out. I do not know one single person who has ever regretted coming out. And that's not because... I've had limited experience of that. No matter what the After, age? No matter what the age. I, Even I, a married man or a lesbian woman in a, in a, in a marriage? I, I, you know? I honestly have never, in, in any of the contexts that I've dealt with, and I say dealt with in a really true sense, and let me just give you, let me qualify that in the sense that after I came out and after I was fairly public about my experiences, lots of people, including friends and people that I'd never even spoken to, would get in touch. And still to this day get in touch and would say, look, this is something that I really need to speak to someone about. I haven't spoken to anyone. What do you think I should do? And in all of those contexts, when people have come out, even if the immediate response is hugely negative, and often it is, in the long term, it's not something to regret. It's something that will allow anyone to live more honestly and openly. And uh, the the thing is, I think we sometimes assume that if you are... If you're not speaking openly about these things, then you're managing them. 
but it doesn't work like that, does it? It just comes out in other ways. That's what always happens. What, what about yourself, Ajit? What I, would do, you say? I do think you summed that up in, uh, quite well, actually, that it's that the fear of the immediate reaction is not necessarily dictates how the rest of your life is going to lead. It's like anything, you know, you're scared of flying. Well, the only way to overcome that is to then get on a plane or any task that you might be fearful of. The best way is to just approach it and attack it head on. And honestly, being who you are and being true to yourself and what you have inside of you and bringing that into the wider world, you will be so surprised by the reaction and, and the people that that attracts as well. And um, not just in romantically, but in friends, in the experiences that you then subsequently live. It just brings back so much more in showing the world who you really are. And to be able to live for yourself and get some sense of integrity. Completely and utterly. And also, if you have an experience like mine, it ends up being the funniest thing that's ever happened to you. <laughs> And what what exactly happened? Well, I, I kind of took the approach of coming out to my closest friends and family and meeting up with people one on one, and really for a lot of them they just weren't surprised. <laughs> so oh, they didn't I, do that. Oh, we knew already. No, they, no, I mean you know it was hilarious. I mean I took my best friend out for for dinner and I waited until the very end after we had a free course meal, as he's sitting there eating his dessert, face down eating this brownie, to say to him, "Oh, mate, I've got something to to say to you." I've, decided that I'm going to come out. And he literally just lifts his head up from the plate and just stares at me saying, as what? <laughs> and to which I was like, as gay? Uh, he was like, oh, okay, fine. And then just continues eating this brownie. It just spiralled out from that after meeting up with other friends in a similar way. Just nobody was particularly that surprised, but also they felt really honoured that I'd kind of come to them personally with that message. Didn't you feel a sense of anticlimax that you were preparing oh, for all God, this stuff? Yeah. You had all your lines ready, your script ready. You know, you've got this you thing. You had your counter arguments. People just go, An internal oh, yeah. monologuing for like six weeks, trying to like pick the right words. And then it all just comes crashing down. But it was actually still just so positive And everyone's reactions were just that they were just so happy for me to be able to come out and be who I am and who I was. And to share it with them has just been a tremendously positive experience for me. I can say in my case that falling in love for the first time, uh, I felt like it was a religious experience. I mm -hmm. felt like it was like a glimpse of infinity, mm -hmm. that it was taking me outside of myself and asking me to give myself to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I looked at what the church, the Catholic church, said about this being an intrinsic disordered condition, mm -hmm. and I compared it with my own subjective feeling, and I realised the two didn't add up. Mm -hmm. And I was prepared to go with the gut feeling that I had. And it's still my view that if God is looking down on two human beings, God doesn't see male, female, 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 male, male. God sees the quality of love mm -hmm. and commitment and honesty. And those are the things through this divine X-ray machine mm -hmm. uh, which are actually seen uh, and not these categories that we humans set up. Mm -hmm. I'm... If I've got that wrong and I go to my um, uh, judgment day, I'm going to have to backpedal very, very quickly. <laughs> uh, but I guess we all are. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is exactly the point, isn't it? Again, that people make their faith work for them and uh, people who are not straight, gay people, bisexual people and so forth, do exactly the same thing. Um, thank you very much to my guests today. That's uh, Mobin and Ajit for sharing with us here on Things Unseen. Next time, we'll be exploring how a belief in the afterlife affects people's approach to dying. Join us for that if you can. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.